Eastern Shore. I'm Brock Winstead. Today on the show, I talk food politics, including the food politics of parenting, with Twilight Greenaway, the managing editor of Civil Eats. If you're like a lot of people in the Bay Area, you've probably absorbed the lesson that you're supposed to care about where your food comes from and how it's made. It's hard for most of us to escape words like organic, local, artisanal, at restaurants and grocery stores and so on, but The message that those words convey is more often a sense of obligation than any real information. You probably know that there's more to the American food system than labels like that can tell you. The food system and the politics that shape it are complicated. There are rules and policies at every level of American government that influence what food we have access to and how much it costs and how the people who make it are treated. There are massive companies with a ton of money and a lot of strong opinions about what those rules should be, and what they want doesn't always, in fact almost never, lines up with what's actually good for us. Food touches a lot of things. Labor, energy, health, transportation, waste and recycling, animal welfare. And keeping track of all that, if you're the kind of person inclined to do so, can be daunting. That's why publications like Civil Eats exist. Civil Eats is an online publication that covers American food politics with a focus on, as they put it, shifting the conversation around sustainable agriculture in an effort to build economically and socially just communities. My guest today will tell you a bit more about what that really means, and that guest is Twilight Greenaway. She's a writer and editor who, for about a decade, has been focusing her work on sustainable food and agriculture and food politics. She lives in Oakland and has done work for The New York Times, NPR's food blog The Salt, Gastronomica, Grist, and many others. Since early 2014, she's been the managing editor at Civil Eats. Twilight and I talked about how she got into this work, what the big stories are right now that are shaping the American food system, and how she manages the sometimes tricky food politics of raising a child. Here's Twilight Greenaway on the Eastern Shore. Twilight Greenaway, hello. Thank you for sitting down with me. Sure. Thanks for having me. You're the managing editor for Civil Eats, uh, and in that role, you 
write and shepherd other people's writing about food and food systems in America and sustainability. Uh, before we get too deeply into your work in particular, if there's someone listening who hasn't heard of uh, the publication you work for, describe Civil Eats. I'm guessing there will be some people listening who have not. Um, so Civil Eats is a website dedicated to, as you said, food systems, which is a little different than most media covering food. So we're thinking about food on a fairly macro level. We're thinking about the people who produce it. We're thinking about the environmental impacts. We're thinking about the additives that go into food. We're thinking about the various federal agencies. So there, there's a lot going on, and we're trying to cover that beat, so to say. And we're a fairly small site, but we publish five days a week, and we have a, I would say, a decent footprint in the social media world as well. We're definitely constantly sort of trying to spread other stories about this type of issue. So we're not just talking about our own work, but we spend a fair amount of time trying to engage in a larger discussion about these issues. If someone says to me that they are a writer or an editor for, say, uh, a sports website, I don't accuse them of being part of a sports movement. But Civil Eats has uh, a mission and uh, a set of values built around it. So Civil Eats did really come about out of, I would say, the beginning of the American food movement as we know it today. Naomi Starkman, who founded the site, she was involved in the Slow Food Nation event that happened in San Francisco in 2009. That was a fairly big convening of people doing work around these issues. And so the site came out of the Slow Food Nation site. It was literally spun off of that, the blog that was created by Slow Food Nation and the organizers around it. So so Slow Food was was part of that backdrop. And Slow Food has been Build that movement has been building for quite a while. So there is there is a movement component, absolutely. I will say that I personally come from a little more of a journalistic background, and I do try to approach these issues in as much in as much as I am capable within this context. I do try to approach these issues in a balanced way, and I do try to bring in people with differing opinions. And I don't think that um, I think that contrary to a lot of assumption about food and food policy today, there are not two perspectives. There are dozens and dozens of perspectives on these issues. So the implication that there is one movement and they are fighting one fight and there's one bad guy and they're fighting that one bad guy, um, I find to be a little limiting. And I think it's, it's a much more complex picture than that. It seems that you do feel some strong connection to that work beyond just, I want to be a reporter in this Absolutely. space. Yes. So yes. How, did, how did that connection come about? So I do think that part of what's happening today is that people are interrogating their food in a different way than, than they ever have. They're, they're really looking at it. They're looking at where it's come from. They are looking at what it's made of. They're looking at the companies behind it. And I am a consumer, but I was also raised on a farm. So I have both of those angles. And I'm also a mom and that I think takes it to a whole new level because children are more impacted by certain things in food, certain things in the environment. They're more sensitive to those things. So um, all of those elements for me come together to make this an important, really important set of issues. What kind of farm did you grow up on? I grew up on a small organic coffee farm in Hawaii. It's, uh, a, it's diversified. It's 
coffee, but it's also fruit and vegetables. My parents bought it in the 1970s. I grew up helping on the farm somewhat when I was a child, but I left when I was 17. So I didn't actually have the experience of being an adult farmer. I've never done that. And I would never pretend to really fully know what that is. I've observed it quite a bit in the case of my my mother, who's still working on the farm today. And I appreciate what she's done and I appreciate what farmers do generally, but, but I just always sort of feel like I need to make that clear that I was raised on a farm, but I don't pretend to fully understand the American farmer experience. Yeah. When you first started digging into food politics as a subject for reporting and writing, what were the things that most excited you and that you were chasing the hardest? Well, it was at a time when people were talking about eating local in this kind of interesting, restrictive, (laughs) um, you know, are you all in kind of way. (laughs) And I wrote about that some, and I... I thought that was kind of fascinating, and also it was just plain trendy. Yeah. So I I caught that wave a little bit and started to look at, like, why is this trendy? And why is it what, much more complicated than a matter of, you know, eating within 100 miles uh-huh. for the next month? Um, I think that was really, honestly, my first little window in was that little moment. And um, before coming to food, I did work. I, I went to a college that was very social justice oriented, and I did work... One of my first editorial jobs was working with young organizers and activists on a website. So I I had somewhat of a social justice bent before getting into food. And so I, I started looking at the, the eating local piece, but I also, from the beginning, had a strong interest in who are the people behind the food that we're eating, who are the people who are not getting access to the healthy food. That piece has always been a really important piece of the puzzle. Yeah. So I don't want to make it sound like I just, I realized when I... You didn't just glom on to food out of nowhere. No, I didn't. Although I, when I when I got involved in the early 2000s, I didn't see as much of that as I, as I do now. It is actually something that I, the, the justice piece has become, I think, a larger part of people's awareness in the Bay Area. Um, is part of what you're saying that it started as more of an environmentally or sustainability-focused movement and has now broadened to include a more so, more of a social justice element along with that sustainability item? I think it has. Of course, it's very tricky to speak about a movement at large, and I only see pieces of it. But I would say that from what I'm observing, there are more people caring about this and therefore more people looking at the complexities. And social justice is a big piece of that. When I first started writing and reading and thinking about these issues, there seemed to be one population talking about the fact that food needed to be more expensive because there's an enormous cost to producing food in an environmentally sustainable way that is also humane and just. Mm -hmm. Because of that, there are quite a few people arguing that food should cost more that the true cost of food does not take into account all these externalities, all these ways that the environment is taxed, ways that we are paying for people's health care, ways that we're paying for supplemental nutritional support for people who are working in the food system. Um, the fact that, that that population is now no longer 
at odds are seen in opposition to people who are saying, well, food needs to be affordable for a certain percentage of the population. That is the most heartening thing Mm -hmm. in the last 10 years. The fact that those two conversations have come together and that people are no longer putting those two pieces at odds with one another. Instead, they're saying, okay, let's look at things like the retail environment. How is the retail environment creating this huge middle space that's screwing the farmer and screwing the, the person who can't afford environmentally sustainable food? Does civil eats have certain areas of work that you just you and the other folks in the editorial staff feel like you know what that's for other places to cover? Sure, we don't cover culinary. We don't cover. Um, well, I should take that back. We do talk about the way that we think that certain chefs are getting involved in mm-hmm. food politics and are um, working for their communities, but we don't generally try to give you ten recipes for. Thanksgiving, for instance. Right. You know, it's definitely outside of what we're doing at Civil Elites. At Civil Elites, we're trying to fill a niche that we don't think is generally filled elsewhere. You don't do culinary stories for the most part. But in 2014, Civil Elites did win a James Beard Award. Uh, it was publication of the year, I think. Yes. Uh, and the James Beard Awards are traditionally more seen as connected to that food as culinary experience world. They actually, in in their awarding the Publication of the Year Award to Civil Elites in 2014, they said, we are recognizing the role of journalism about the food system in a new way. They acknowledged that, and that was really, I think, an important moment for us and for them. Mm-hmm. They do have a conference that they're putting on now every fall that is looking more at food systems, and they're giving awards to people making changes in the food system. So they've definitely expanded their reach. You know, they used to really just be very chef-focused for a very long time, and in the last five years, they've they've really started doing a lot more, so that's exciting. What are some of the big stories now that are on your radar, on Civil Elite's radar, in the food politics world, the things that you feel like are currently shaping or will soon be shaping the American food system in a, in a big and important way? I think one of the big stories, and I don't think it's fully told or fully understood yet, is climate change and how climate change is impacting food and how food and farming can, in many ways, impact and mitigate, potentially mitigate climate change. Um, and I think at the core of that discussion is meat production. Mm-hmm. There are questions about how much meat we should eat. There are also questions about how we should produce meat. And sometimes those two worlds tend to be a little bit at odds. You have people who say we should all stop eating meat right now. That numbers are obvious. You know, the the methane, the CO2, the deforestation, all the factors involved in meat production that you can draw a pretty straight line to climate change. Um, there are people pointing to those things. And then on the other side, you have people saying managed grazing and raising cows in particular in this slightly different but different and important kind of way um, that if we can harness that and really take that to a new level globally even, that that can go a long way towards mitigating climate change. So you really have both and they... I would say there are there are some ways that those two populations can work together and are working together, but it's I would say it's a really contentious issue right now mm-hmm. and a really important one. Mm-hmm. It's tricky though. People have very strong feelings about meat. Yes, they do. In both directions. Um, I I also 
already sort of mentioned the the worker piece, but I could say more about that. Yeah, do say more about that. Well, I mean, the the fact that the fast food workers have had such a, a loud vocal presence in the last few years and the fact that the minimum wage discussion is so activated all around the country and the fact that, that those things are, are really, for a lot of people, that the dots are being connected. Part of the reason that certain foods are too, are quote unquote too cheap is because the people who make it are too cheap, so to speak. We, we don't pay enough on the labor side. Absolutely. So those, that all fits together. And it does feel to me like those connections uh, between kind of different sides of the food system, you know, the, the labor as an input, those connections have become more explicit over the past few years. Mm-hmm. Some people are definitely treating it that way. Um, I think the fact that four of the 10 lowest paying jobs in the in the country, you know, types of jobs are in the food system is a compelling piece of that discussion, right? So people people in the food system are not generally getting paid very well. You have the restaurant discussion. I don't know how much you've followed that, but tipping and the fact that the, the tipped minimum wage is still, the federal tip minimum wage is still just a little over $2. Um, you have people in warehouses, you have people working for large retails, large retailers like Walmart, you mm-hmm. have people driving trucks, you have this whole food chain. And what I'm inspired by is the fact that there is more of an effort to, to work together as a food chain and to talk about these issues as inherently connected for various workers along that chain. Mm-hmm. Whether that means the minimum wage fight, which is more generalized for low wage workers all over the country, um, it's not you know, a whether food we'll, industry specific. Exactly. But I do think that the food industry, people in the food industry have really been an engine. Mm-hmm. I will say that. And I think that the, the, fa- the, fast, that the, the fact that the fast food workers have been so vocal and so really so organized, even though they're not unionized, which yeah. is complicated, but the fact that they've been as vocal as they have has been a big piece of that. Mm-hmm. I also wrote, I wrote a piece this summer about tipping. Yeah. And I've been thinking a lot about tipping, and there's been this really interesting sea change. I think that it's very connected to the minimum wage piece, because as restaurants raise the minimum wage, they start to think about the inequality among their employees. So if you have a, you have a friend of the house worker now making twelve twenty five, and on top of that, they will make potentially several hundred dollars in tips, and you have a back-of-the-house employee making twelve twenty five. In some cases, they get tipped out, but in some cases, they don't. Mm -hmm. And so some restaurants are changing the percentage of of tips that get shared from the front to the back of the house, and I think that that makes perfect sense. But another approach has been to stop tipping altogether, charge either a percentage increase in the cost of the food, or charge an actual surcharge at like a 20% charge at the and end of the what, meal among others kamal and berkeley mm-hmm. yeah. and the, you know alice waters did that years ago at chez panisse there's they've always maybe always is not the right word for many years they have the tips have all been put into a common pool and then it goes into people's paychecks and people just make a better hourly mm-hmm. and they in a lot of these restaurants they're more able to offer benefits so there is a, a little bit of a leveling it's not quite a leveling of the playing field, but it's, it's a, a less uneven playing field being created in some of these restaurants. Mm-hmm. And I do think that 
that's appealing to restaurant owners. I think it's, of course, going to be a painful change. And there are going to be servers who will leave jobs because they're not going to get as much. But I actually do think it's a change that will continue to to happen. Are there things that are maybe kind of on the horizon that aren't quite a part of the popular discussion yet? Absolutely. I think one of the biggest ones is the, not to be too dramatic about it, but the fact that farmers are more or less disappearing. The fact that people working on a human scale to produce food are retiring much faster than they are able to fill those spaces. And the fact that land is so incredibly expensive in so many parts of the country where agriculture is occurring, this is a much bigger issue. But those two factors, the fact that the, so the American farmer is now, the average age of the American farmer is now around 58. There is pretty clear science around the fact that when those farmers retire, they're more likely to be replaced by large agribusiness interests than they are by individual family farms. Whether we want to use the word artisanal, which I'm not always a fan of, but the but but if you look at the roots of artisanal and the idea of actually doing things by hand and sure. that for so long farming and other food production was done by hand and that we're really moving away from that at a very large scale, very fast, much faster than most of us can understand. So the I don't know that we're going to lose hand labor. Okay. I think there will always That's, be laborers. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just that the the ownership and the in many ways the emotional investment is now going to be compartmentalized away from the people whose hands are involved. Oh. The people whose hands are involved, not not to say that workers don't put a lot of love into their work because they do. I'm sure that they do. They have to because they do it all day long. Um, but I do think that for the most part, most of those workers are disenfranchised in a way that they don't have the t- they're not given the time or the space <laughs> to care. Yeah. This is where I think food and farming becomes an issue on a lot of other things because I think we've lost we've lost the idea that working with our hands is valuable mm. across the board. We have these little sort of niche artisanal businesses and we have these very large businesses and there's not much in between. Mm-hmm. Um, you have people talking about this idea of the agriculture of the middle, but it's really kind of for the most part, mid-sized production in many areas has gone away. So and this, as I see it, and this is a little potentially inflammatory, but as I see it, a fair amount of this local food and artisanal food, while it's great and I personally love it and I, I love the people doing it, it can distract us from just how big <laughs> the other factors are the other companies that are producing 95 to 98 to 99 percent of the food that we're actually consuming. The agriculture of the middle phrase you just used. It's it's an academic term. Academic agriculture professors and folks, particularly in the Midwest, there's a, a professor named Fred Kirshenman. Actually, I don't know if he's still a professor. Mm. There's a there's a an agricultural thinker named Fred sure. Kirshenman who is held up as I would say the the guy really in charge of the agriculture of the middle, and he worked on a great book with a few other academics and thinkers a few years back. But it hasn't gotten its due as a as a topic of conversation. What does it mean? So it means that um, again that the middle space in agriculture has fallen away, and that there are ways to sort of rethink what it would take and 
there are companies doing this, trying to kind of rebuild that middle space. I would say a lot of them are um, cooperatives, but there are companies doing it as well. They're looking into like, how do we create something that's in between the Cargill and the Cowgirl Creamery? Mm -hmm. Um, You have something like Organic Valley. They're a really good example. They work with a huge network of actually small family farms all over the country and they they're cooperative but they have a presence in grocery stores right next to the products that Cargill produces and next to the in here in the Bay Area next to some of the products that someone like Cowgirl Creamery produces so it's really a question of how do we do more of that how do we is it possible to do more of that without that then being sold to the Cargills right I mean what just happened with Nyman Ranch so th- this is the story that I'm really invested in right now is is how do these companies come about? How do they stick around? Are they going to stick around? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of big questions. Your parents bringing you up clearly brought a certain set of values about food and agriculture to the to the literal table. Yes, and a lot of them I really didn't articulate until I was in my 30s. Right. So you you didn't come out of your youth saying these issues are the most important thing for me, and they're important to you now, but they are only one of many things you care about in the world, mm-hmm. happens to be the world you work in. No person intentionally parents in exactly the same way that they were parented. The way that you are introducing food to your two-year-old son's life is probably different than the way your parents introduced food to yours. What are you doing differently? That's a great question. Well, he's still young enough that I guess I I would hope I have a little leeway and can still figure it out. But I would say that I I try to eat with him as much as possible. Mm-hmm. I try to, um, it sounds a little weird to say this, but I try not even to enter the sphere where some foods are good and some foods are bad and some foods some people like and some people don't. I try just to have a lot of food around, eat a lot of food with him, talk about how everything I'm eating is delicious as much as I can, because most of the food that I eat is delicious, and I'm really lucky that way. I I love cooking, and I love the fresh produce available to us here, and I mean, mean, there's so much dogma around how you have to help your child try the food, you know, I don't even know how many times, 10 times, 20 times, there's a lot of times when you're, that you're supposed to introduce a, a food to a child before they can really safely say they don't like it. Um, and I'm, I, I think, and I think my friends and family will, would agree that I don't have to worry too much about that. I have a good eater. My son is so far very interested in food and very hungry and has a, quite a metabolism. So I'm not as worried about that as a lot of other people, but I also, you know, I know the nitty gritty around sugar and um, I think a lot about antibiotics and meat and I I think about these things absolutely and I, I daily kind of go back and forth between using what I learn in my job to inform the decisions around what I feed Marlo and then also trying to sort of ignore some of it when I can and allow for him to, to eat for pleasure and, you know, allow for him to eat things that, of course, I would never personally feed him, but that enter his life. I mean, he's fed by other people. He Sure. Right. You don't have total control over <laughs> I everything. I don't. In fact, I have, <laughs> I would say I have about 50% control. Yeah. 
and I try to do what I can with that 50%. And of course, I try to influence what he eats in other places. I pack him lunches, but I know he doesn't always eat what I pack that him. That number starts at 100% <laughs> and only gets smaller. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm, I have no doubt that he will go through a phase of wanting to eat entirely different things than what I eat and what I serve him. But my sister went through that phase, and she, she and I eat exactly the same now. And I think that it's more about sort of building in an early respect for like what it is to make a salad and how Uh, delicious it is when you steam a beet and (laughs) at two you're not sitting him down and having a conversation about factory farming no (laughs) Um, you're just trying to model good behavior and and yeah and talk about the fact that food grows outside and that we can pick it and that it's a really fascinating process and we can participate in that and i think the there are all kinds of statistics about kids who understand where their food comes from and participate in the process. I mean, the Edible Schoolyard has done a pretty good job of tracking that, and so have some other academics, and it's it really bears out. Kids who pick the green beans are way more interested in tasting the green beans and eating the green beans later, and they may even ask their mom to cook green beans at home when they get there. Um, so I, I see that even, even in small ways with my child. Like when he is sitting there with me and he sees that I put the beans in the bowl and I put water in them to soak them overnight and then he sees that in the morning he's a little more interested in eating those beans when I cook them because some some sort of magical things happen to them <laughs> exactly yes do you see yourself at some point sitting down and having the conversation explicitly about say factory farming and where food comes from in that way um, that being sort of you know I'm didactic sure about it? it will come up at various points but I also I kind of cringe at the thought of that at least too early. Mm. Um, I mean, I I just know that if I hammer on it too hard that he's going to rebel. <laughs> so it's it's very tricky. Yeah. I mean, mm. you know, my mom my mom has been an activist in some ways in Hawaii and she's um also will have an influence, I'm sure, and my mother-in-law is a gardener and she will have an influence and you know, there are all these different little pieces but I can only do so much. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of only doing so much, I'm not quite sure what the right metric is, but if you had, if Civil Eats had one more person could go to whatever the next, ratchet up to the next step, what are some things that you would love to be doing but just don't have the resources for right Ooh, now? Great question. I mean, we have, we have kind of a wish list, but one of the big ones is we would love to have a person in Washington, D.C. covering you know, everything that's happening with the ag committees, mm-hmm. everything that's happening with lobbying on the Hill mm-hmm. around food and agriculture. That's a dream of ours. Could happen in the near future. Mm-hmm. We hope so. Um, one thing that I didn't bring up is the food in relation to this election cycle. And it's not a super visible issue for a lot of folks, but we're really tracking it. And we are also paying attention to the advocates who are trying, to, really trying hard to elevate food and food policy issues. Um, There's a group called Food Policy Action that formed a few years ago, and they create these scorecards, much like a lot of other similar groups in D.C. Um, And they are working with a few other coalitions this year to, they actually have a pretty impressive campaign around what it is Americans want Mm. in a better food system. And they've done some really smart polling 
Uh, as you would imagine, a lot of what Americans want is more affordable, accessible, healthy food. And while that sounds very simple, yeah. you know, that's that's actually a big issue. Yeah. Like, we need to make that happen for more Americans. The more fruits and vegetables is important and more um, more meat that's raised without antibiotics. Like, people are actually, when you really sit down and talk to them, they're asking for these things. Mm-hmm. So um, the more that they can move those numbers, put those numbers in front of, po- front of politicians, the yeah. more that that sites like ours can really ideally, in the long run, get more responses from those politicians. We'd love to hear from Hillary about how she thinks we could get more healthy food in yeah. more places around the country. We'd love to hear from her about how we could reform our subsidy system, mm-hmm. our farm subsidy system. I mean, there's these are things that are actually really important in some of the states where they're doing a lot of their campaigning, and yet um, they haven't percolated up to the degree that we'd like to see them do that. Is that audience getting bigger? I think so. Absolutely. Does that mean that the audience for something like Civil Eats gets bigger? I do think so. I mean, our audience has grown, if that's what you're asking. Yes. In the last year and a half, it's grown by about 200%, but Mm. it was, it was really small when I started. Mm. Um, and it's, it is growing. The larger question though, um, I mean, we could ask that about so many things, right? Some days I think, yes, absolutely. And some days I turn on the news and I <laughs> hear that people are at a, that a large number of people are at a rally for a politician I won't name who I can't even believe is has made it this far. Sure. So I <laughs> sometimes my mind is completely blown by, you know, what the masses are doing. Yeah. I try to tell myself that it takes all kinds to make a world, uh-huh. um, and then I sometimes forget just how many kinds there are. Well, and there's and there's a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, I haven't gotten into this too much yet, but there's a whole lot of money right now. There's a lot of people, a lot of uh, high-powered communications and PR people who follow us <laughs> regularly and are trying to think about how they can take our messages or the messages that we're covering, the stories that we're covering, and fold them into the work of a company like Cargill. Mm. That's happening all over the place. There's a lot of um, co-opting of the food movement by big corporations. There's a lot of um, big-time lobbying going on. Obviously, you're partial to civil elites and the coverage that comes through your website. But who else is doing good work out there? What are, what are other sources of good coverage of, of food, politi- food politics and, and food systems reform in, in this country? Great question. So I think that NPR and the fact that NPR has picked up food in the way that they have and really run with it is amazing and really important. They have a, a great, very regular, very developed food blog called The Salt, which I recommend. Mm-hmm. Um, So that, I would say, on the mainstream level, that's huge. National Geographic has also been doing more food coverage. They've brought in some bloggers who are doing great work. Maren McKenna, I don't know if you follow her work, but she writes a lot about antibiotics and factory farming, and she is writing for them. You know, Tom Philpott, I would say, he really, on the blog level, he's been doing this for longer than most of the other people in this world, and the fact that he's still going and that he's at Mother Jones and that he's really, I think... um, in some other ways, like pushed food in the Mother Jones world has mm. been great. Um, 
I mean, Mother Jones covers factory farming and they cover some of these larger issues anyway. They, they yeah. did before he was there, but I think um, he's really helped fill that out there. Um, Politico has an amazing set of agriculture reporters huh. right now. That's good They're know. doing really good work around agriculture in Washington, in Congress. Mm. Some of it is very nerdy. It's not really for the food movement novice, yeah. but it's really good stuff. Mm. I mean, the fact is I think that a lot of mainstream publications are covering these issues. They may not have you know, a little niche section for it, but I mm. think more and more of the really big important pieces here are showing up all over the media. And then you have food publications like Eater. They're running feature content now. Sometimes they're dipping into these areas. They're looking at antibiotics in meat, or they're looking at various experiences that farmers are having. I should also say that Fern, the Food and Environmental Reporting Network, they are really helping that happen. They're putting, they're working with editors at publications that wouldn't normally publish these types of investigative and longer term or investigative and longer form pieces about food and farming. They're helping kind of seed that in other places. The number of people writing about this issue, you talked about that. Some of it is that it's kind of a sexy topic. There's there's a lot going on, but also I've had the pleasure of working with quite a few writers in the last year and a half, and quite a few of them are young and developing writers, and this is sort of a topic that they are excited about. And yeah, so I guess I'm heartened by how many people want to tell these stories and are just like clamoring for an opportunity to do that. I mean, we didn't spend a lot of time looking for new contributors for the first year I was there. We had some people we worked with. We put out a few calls occasionally. And then in the last few months, We've had a few larger sites um, share the fact that we were looking for contributors. And so this last month in particular, I've really been flooded by a lot of people wanting to write for us. And it's been it's been a little overwhelming, but also really exciting. You know, if I if I stop and step back from the day to day stress of it, it's it's great. How many people want to get in there and want to, like, you know, work out these complexities and Mm want to talk to other people about it and get the story and, you know, figure out why it matters and explain why it matters. And all of that has been really actually very inspiring. Hmm. Well, Twilight Greenaway, thank you for the time and the education. I appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time to speak with me. I feel like I just got started. (laughs) (laughs) I could talk for hours. I won't make you do that. that. That would be cruel. That was Twilight Greenaway, the managing editor of Civil Eats. You can find her writing and some of the products of her editorial work at civileats.com. And you can see more of what she does at twilightgreenaway.com. You can find links to those sites and so much more at tespodcast.com, the online home of this show. You can listen to previous interviews, subscribe to the show. That's something you can also do in iTunes or Stitcher. No searching needed, though. You can find links to both of those at tespodcast.com. Come say hi. This has been the Eastern Shore. I have been and continue to be local artisanal Brock Winstead. Thank you for listening. Man, oh man, was Jonathan 
it's me All timorous Listening to the Eastern Shore on BFF.FM, best frequencies forever. I'm Brock Winstead. That was Ted Leo and the Pharmacists with Timorous Me. Here's. Well, here's Get Into the Party Life by Little Beaver.
first met you, you were perfect I couldn't believe how perfect you could be But over the years You've gotten perfecter And with smug satisfaction Look down your perfect nose at me Now I can read the writing on the wall I know our relationship's in danger And before you know it I'll be all alone again And you'll become A perfect stranger After you've gone No one can tell me how to act I'll do exactly as I please After you've gone I'll be my own man as soon as I can get up off my knees The minute you go stepping out that door I'll throw my socks and underwear all over the floor After you've gone, the lawn will be a jungle Call me Tarzan and I'll call you gone After you've gone, I'll leave the toilet seat up I'll stop recycling and start smoking cigarettes After you've gone, there'll be a holiday I'll take my Kyo plan to Reno and invest I'll 
shave and leave my whiskers in the sink. No, I'll stop shaving. I'll grow a beard. That's what I think after you've gone. If you think I'll miss you, you'll be wrong, baby, after you've gone. Again, I'll order double helpings of dessert. My buds, Curly Moe, and Larry will be welcome here when you and all your popery have disappeared after you've gone. I'll have more closet space to take your place after you've gone. Nothing can take your place. I'll have more closet space after you've gone. In my arms, 
This is the Eastern Shore on BFF.FM. Best frequencies forever. I'm Brock Winstead. That last song was Machine Gun by the Commodores. Before that was Blake Mills with If I'm Unworthy. And before that, Trout Fishing in America with the song After You've Gone. Yes, they're named after the Richard Browdigan novel. That would be really weird if they weren't. If you missed the interview I did at the top of the show with Twilight Greenaway about food politics in America, you can catch that in podcast form at tespodcast.com. That's tespodcast.com. It's a shorter interview this week, so I had to play a little more music, which I enjoy and I hope you did too. Thank you for sticking around and listening. Coming up now on BFF.fm, San Francisco People with Frank Garza. Here's Frank. Story on San Francisco People. I'm Brianna Haig, and today you'll hear my story on San Francisco People. 